Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hello, my name is uh, Richard Howard. I'm a startup business development manager for Amazon Web Services here in the UK. I'm doing a series of podcasts with angel investors to talk about things that they think of and they value when they're looking at investing in early stage startups. With me today is uh, Simon Thorpe. He was the UK Business Angel Association Angel of the Year in 2016, 2017. He has made um, investments in around 30 companies, including uh, SwiftKey, Ingot and Thunderbeam. And he has made six or seven exits. Simon, welcome. Richard, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to uh, speak with you today. Very interesting to be here. Lots of things to talk about. A uh, little bit of background, very quick bit of background about me. Uh, I actually started as a, as an accountant, believe it or not, found it far too exciting and uh, decided to uh, take up investment. I actually worked in equity research for 22 years, traveled all over the world, very familiar with lots of different cultures. And really, I've applied my uh, my research skills in, in angel investing for the last decade. And my key interest really is in the digital economy, which we're going to talk a little bit more about in, in the next few minutes, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. You said you were an accountant and then in, in research. We spoke before the show, you were doing that at UBS for 22 years. What was it that led you to make your first angel investment? Well, I think I'd always been interested in uh, in management teams. So you know, what you understand in equities as opposed to bonds is that actually equities are driven by people. They're driven by management teams. So the most successful companies are driven by really, really good teams. And I think over many years, I've learned to try and judge whether people are, have got what it takes to be an entrepreneur. You know, being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely place, which is why generally people like two founders, not one founder. Uh, so you can spread that load. It's a very, very lonely place as an entrepreneur because you're expected to be able to do everything. And of course, no individual has all the skills. So you've got to surround yourself with the right people. So learning how to judge uh, teams is really a key ingredient of what I've learned over many years. Cool. And and so can you talk us through that, that first angel investment that you did? When was it? What was it about that team? If you, if you, you, you focus on the team is so important. You've got your research background. What was it about that team where you're like, do you know what? I'm going to put my own money into this. Yeah, so when I started, uh, maybe 20 years ago, when I probably made my first angel investment, I was really used to investing in much bigger companies. And you know, I was used to quoted equities, which of course are very different. Uh, and you have many more parameters around which to invest. Uh, but when you're investing in things at really early stage, you really are investing in a vision and in a concept. And often you meet somebody for the very first time and you know that they've got something a bit special. You can't necessarily put your finger on it, but you just think there's a hunch that something special. And and I had that, I guess, with uh, SwiftKey, which was one of my earliest investments. And really it was described to me as, uh, at the time as a predictive text for touchscreen devices. Now, you have to go back a bit in time to remember this. This is when, you know, soon after the Apple iPhone came out in 2007, and it was all pretty newfangled at that stage. But and touchscreen devices were, were, were pretty unfamiliar yeah. to most people. Uh, and at that time, you know, there had to be a better uh, option than the old T9 predictive text. And these guys had come up with something, and I met them, and I just knew that they had something. Um, and, of course, the business model changed as they went along, um, but the concept was a good one and I recognized the team were a good one. So that that's that was one of my first investments. Yeah. And I, I am a user and lover of SwiftKey. I, I see people uh, typing on their phones with their with their two thumbs and I'm like, what are you doing? That must take so long. And were you one of the first uh, angels who to, to say yes to SwiftKey? What was that round like? Yeah, um, I wasn't one of the first. 
Actually, there's a colleague of mine called Richard Brennan who was one of the first, but um, there were a number of us that invested in a number of rounds in the, in the okay. company. And uh, it, it was uh, it was a su- success for many reasons, but it was successful from a financial point of view because it actually had early angels. It then had an early a, a VC with Foresight who made an early investment and then it had a more significant VC investment and so on. And it, it, it went through the, the, the right sort of trajectory, if you, if you like. Yeah, no, of course. So you talked about making uh, your first investment about 20 years ago. We've, we've spoken about um, SwiftKey, which was one of the most successful ones that you've had. At what point did you decide, this is something I'm going to do almost full-time. I'm going to really scale up my investment. I'm going to spend a lot of time meeting with founders, meeting with entrepreneurs, and and dedicate a huge amount of time to investing. What was it that kind of triggered that? And and kind of how have you found that? Yeah, so, so great question. I mean, I, I started in 2009, uh, which obviously was just after the the, the great financial crisis. Uh, looking back on it, it was obviously a very good time to invest because uh, the economic situation didn't look good at that time. And there were lots of companies that actually couldn't get any bank finance and thought, well, perhaps we should raise equity. So there are many good opportunities at that, at that time. Uh, and angel investing wasn't quite so fashionable as it is now. Sure. So I met many interesting companies, SwiftKey, ViewRanger, Growth Engineering, and some of these companies have gone very different trajectories. Some have raised no money at all and grown almost organically. Some have raised serious external capital like uh, SwiftKey did uh, and others. And so really I decided about that time, 2009, to, to become really a professional angel investor and be out there meeting companies all the time. And I've learned an awful lot over those 10 years, as you can imagine. can imagine. Did you have like a an early mentor that had maybe been an angel for a while that, that helped guide you through it, or were you just kind of out there on your own learning as you went? Interestingly, no, I didn't. Uh, but really what I was doing was applying the, the, the research skills that I had learned over 22 years. Yeah. I'd been an accountant before that, so I understood how to read P&L and balance sheets. I understood how to do my own analysis. And I suppose... What I did was I built up a network very quickly. I made a conscious effort to go and meet people who yep. did know how to angel invest, who were already angel investors. Uh, I did build up a network with venture capitalists as well, because that's also important. You know, historically it used to be well, angels versus venture capitalists. Well, it's it's not like that now, and certainly the smart venture capitalists recognise they want to work with good angels because yep. good angels can feed them good deals, and vice versa. So. That that works a lot better now. The system, the ecosystem is much better joined up. Yeah. So how long did it take you from going out to, to kind of meeting your first potential uh, investments to when you had that network that might be able to bring deals to you? Because I guess yeah. what you do at the beginning, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you say, all right, I'm going to, 2009, I'm going to become an angel. I'm going to start investing full time. I need to be much more proactive. I need to go out and meet potential founders, meet entrepreneurs. I'm going to be proactive and going out to meet these VCs. And then after a while, you build up a reputation, you build up a portfolio and quite a decent amount of deal flow will come to you. What was that kind of timeline difference? Yeah, I think it's two to three to maybe four years to okay. really build up a good network so that the deal flow comes to you yeah. rather than you have to go out and search it all the time. The best deal flow comes from people that you know and trust yeah. because this business is actually all about trust. Yeah. Uh, it's trust between the entrepreneurs and the, and, the, and the angels, the VCs and the entrepreneurs, and it's trust between you and your fellow angel investors or your fellow venture capital investors, whoever they are. Who you invest with is almost as important as who you invest in. Absolutely. Um, and just going back to a point that you made uh, a little bit earlier when you are talking about 
back in 2009 when you were meeting these companies. Some went on to raise significant amounts of outside investment. Some didn't. Do you have a personal view on when is the when you have a company that is right for raising outside finance? Do you tell entrepreneurs, you guys don't need to raise outside finance, you should just make this what we pejoratively call in the business a lifestyle business? Will you be upfront with entrepreneurs yeah. about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I would call it organically growing rather yeah. than a lifestyle business. But, but sometimes those things can go together because sometimes a, a, an entrepreneur won't want to be beholden to outside investors. Sure. And uh, you can sometimes see that pr- pretty early on. It also will depend on the business model. You know, if the business model is earing towards services and consulting, then it's probably likely that business will be better growing organically than taking outside uh, investors' money. Yeah. Uh, so yes, I mean to answer your question directly, yes, I will be honest with the with the entrepreneurs. They may not listen, of course. Of course. I mean, I like personally, I dislike the lifestyle business um, name that we give it because you can be a super successful entrepreneur, you can have an amazing business and have an amazing life, earn a lot of money from having what we would class as a, a lifestyle business. I You can. And there's no point attracting lots of angel investors if you can't promise and, and promise them an exit. Absolutely. If you can't actually deliver them an exit. Because yeah. no, sure. they're only going to be disappointed. Your investors are only going to be disappointed. No, for sure. I think that that's true. Um, and then we were talking about you've you've built this network and and now it takes you know three or four years and you have people that you trust giving you or, or sending potential entrepreneurs potential investments to you. How are you judging them? What are you looking for? And you mentioned team earlier. Is there anything beyond team? Is it traction? Is it the idea? What is it that really attracts you? So so my essential model is the team, the technology, the intellectual property or defensibility of that of that idea, and is there a big market size? So. Four things. And so, first of all, I make a, a judgment on the team. Uh, I won't always get that right, of course. Sure. Sometimes a team will be excellent, but the, the business model they're pursuing fails for whatever reason. Uh, secondly, there needs to be some, what I would call, differentiated technology. So something, something that's unique or at least significantly differentiated. The more IP, the more patents there are or other intellectual property behind it the better um i use a company called ingot which is an uh, an investment that i'm uh, that i've made where the software allows you to classify and value your ip and that's very useful for trying to identify what the ip actually is very useful for entrepreneurs too in terms of their thought process around how they might develop their intellectual property Um, and then i'll be looking at um uh, how defensible that is and i'll be looking at the market size because SwiftKey again was a good example of market size. You know that that company was became I think the the, the number one paid app in sixty two countries around the world in in a very short space of time, and most of the really good ideas that I've invested in have been able to go global almost immediately. Yep, they might start off in the UK or they might start off in America or they might start start off in a European country, but their technology is applicable globally. And that that gives you an immediate, um, much bigger opportunity. For sure. And SwiftKey, um, I guess, I know there are business use cases, but it's mainly a B2C company. Uh, well, no, oh, so, okay. So, okay, so that's a great <laughs> so that's a great question. So actually the guys knew that actually what they wanted to be was a B2B company. Okay. But they knew when they were in their, you know, garage in Cambridge and then they moved to London they knew that actually they couldn't really go knocking on the door of Samsung and Blackberry and, and Apple as two two young guys yeah. so they thought well what we need to do is actually create a B2C business model which will convert to a B2B and they did that by creating an app yep. which people downloaded on their phones and then of course Samsung came knocking on the door and said well actually you know, we want the we want your software embedded in our phone when we sell it rather yep. than people downloading an app after they bought the phone okay. so yeah 
And they they had that, you know, they had that roadmap laid out from the early stages. They knew that was the route they were going to have to go. Well, I don't think they they didn't know that right at the beginning. They worked that out as they yeah. as they developed the tech. They worked it out pretty quickly, and then actually they were surprised at how quickly uh, the apps were were downloaded. Uh, yeah. Because at that time, people paid for apps. They don't yeah. tend to pay for apps so much now, unless you're buying it in a sort of you know premium subscription model. Of so course. the models developed. I mean, here we are. We're sort of ten years on. So. Yeah. No. Uh, super interesting. And then, um, so you've talked about how you you judge um, your investments, what you're looking for with the, with the team and the market size. Can you talk me through things that entrepreneurs might have done that are terrible uh, in pitching? What, what what mistakes can potential entrepreneurs or potential founders avoid um, that will just turn off you and and other angels in particular? <laughs> big big question. I mean, there's so many so many red flags. I call them red flags. Um, I mean, I think one of, one of the things is 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 promising all sorts of things that you know as an investor almost immediately that they, they just can't be delivered. You know, it's yeah. just just being sort of totally unrealistic. You know, I want to see vision, I want to see ambition, but I don't want to see entrepreneurs being totally unrealistic. Yeah, um, you know, every, everybody wants to change the world, right? Of course. Well, well, you can disrupt existing businesses, you can bring a new technology, you can change the way an industry operates. But you can't really change the world. So yeah. be realistic at the same time as being ambitious. I don't like to see a company say, we are going to have 10% market share of this market yeah. by 2025 yeah. or whatever. Because you know, you I just know that we all know that's going to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there, there's the uh, there's the old adage, the market is a hundred billion dollars. If we get just one percent of that, we're a billion dollar company. It's just there's a lot of companies trying to get that one percent. I think it is important to be able to give some data around the size of the addressable market. Yeah. Because an investor will want to understand that the company's done it and the entrepreneurs have done their research that it is actually a big market. Yeah. And are you looking at, at your early stage of investment, Are you do you care about traction in particular or is it around more about that team, that technology, that market size? And maybe they haven't launched yet, but it's... Um, or are you saying, no, 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 I want to see that you've launched, I want to see that you have a plan for sales and marketing, and I want to see a little bit of traction? So I think this is a great question, but it, it depends on what the business is trying to decide its value is okay. to potential acquirers. So many businesses that I invest in may not really be a revenue play at all. I'm not really interested in the revenue. Sure, I'm actually interested in whether the technology is developed to a point where an acquirer will want to buy the technology and possibly the team, probably the probably both. Yeah, I mean, Vocal IQ was a good example of that. It was acquired as a, some people call it as an aqua hire, but it was it was acquired by Apple to to help to enhance their Siri voice recognition. Yep. And it just so happened it was a company based in Cambridge and they were keen to 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 have some presence in Cambridge. So it made sense. They certainly didn't buy it for revenue because they didn't have any revenue. Yep. So that's one example, but there are other examples where a business actually needs to have revenue to, gen to, to, to give it credibility that it's actually generated product, what we call product market fit. Yep. And you can't really give, you can't really argue to investors that you've got product market fit if you haven't got any revenue. For sure. So it depends on the business model. Yeah. And so one of the things that, that I've seen, I wonder if you see this because, um, and we'll come on to this a little bit, you're, you know, you're based in Cambridge, you have a, a huge number. Cambridge, I guess, is, is more known for AI companies, healthcare, life science type companies. 
sometimes when I meet entrepreneurs in that space, um, they're probably the smartest people I've ever met. But part of me thinks that they just, some of them at least, just want to continue doing research. They don't necessarily have a, a full business plan. They, they, you know, they've got, it's going to take three years to, to do this research and that's what I'm super excited about. And you're like, but yeah, who's going to buy it? And how are you going to market it? And, and you know, because that has to, if you're going to build a business, that's what you have to do. Is, is that something you, you, you find and, and are you looking out for that? We find it all the time. And yeah. this is not a problem that's, um, that's peculiar to Cambridge. It's sure. peculiar to many universities or it's, it, it's applicable to many universities. It's a challenge, which actually I think Cambridge has addressed very well. It's worked out that it's obviously got very strong ac- academics and it's, through Cambridge Enterprise, through local VCs, local angel groups, Cambridge Angels, Cambridge Capital Group, it has got an ecosystem that broadly people in Cambridge know where to go in order to get commercial help for, for academia. So, yeah. so, so that now works much, much better than it, say, did 25 years ago. Yeah. That's really what Cambridge, that's what people like me and Cambridge Angels are doing. We're, work, we're trying to work with young entrepreneurs, older entrepreneurs, to help them commercialize their excellent academic research. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Just to, to transition a little bit, I wanted to talk about female founders. Yes. Um, so you are uh, an investor in, I think, it's 10 female-led companies? Yeah, it's actually, uh, it's actually, I think, about 16 now when, 16, I, lost, wow. okay. when, I, when I last counted. And you need to update your website. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think we did just update it last week because I've just invested in some more female founders. So, oh. um, so, so really, it's sort of hot off the press. But um, yeah, this is an interesting theme. Yeah, so... Have you made a specific effort to invest in female founders or is it just, I mean, a bunch of entrepreneurs, it happens to be that 16 of them uh, that I've invested in were women, but it's not that I was kind of particularly looking for them? Yeah, so it's a great question. I've thought about this a lot myself. I thought, did I actually start off with a deliberate strategy? The answer to that is no, I didn't. I didn't I didn't think I must invest in female uh, entrepreneurs. I think the way this came about was my network tended to be reasonably balanced and there tended to be a lot of women in that network and I tended to know perhaps more women in business than other people did and therefore I was presented with lots of good investment opportunities. I've seen that change a lot in the last five years so there are a lot more female entrepreneurs coming through. Groups like Angel Academy have really helped helped that here in London and there are some similar groups in the US, Astia for example. So that's changed quite a bit. The financing side is still very difficult for women. Okay. Um, and, you know, uh, all the stats are pretty well known, but you know, the, the number of angel investors in, number of female angel investors is still quite small. It's reckoned to be about 14% in the UK. It's not that different in the US, probably even less in Asia. Um, and among the VCs, among the venture capitalists, you know, the, the number of female partners is tiny. It's yeah. one, or, one or 2%. So it's going to take ch- time to change that. But certainly, certainly uh, there are a lot more female entrepreneurs out there and there are a lot more people like me trying to back those female entrepreneurs. Yeah, and once they've raised their angel around these, these uh, female-led companies, are you finding that their subsequent investment raises are harder uh, than you know maybe a very equivalent male-led company? Or are you finding that once they've got traction on a certain level, once they've got that angel investment, the, the playing field levels off, or is it still harder? I think it's still harder. Okay. Um, it's quite difficult for me to give you real data points sure. for that. But my my impression is it's still harder. I, I think that's partly because when you're presenting to angel groups at an early stage, usually the angel groups are largely men, even older than me, if you can believe that. So I think that is uh, that is a difficulty. Um, I think the other difficulty that Angel Academy have found is that um, many of these businesses initially a lot of women would come forward with businesses that they dreamt up when they were on maternity leave and so they tended to be kind of mum's businesses 
And they're not really what angel investors are looking for in general. Sure. But Angel Academy are attracting a lot more very high-tech, um, life sciences type businesses, more of what you were talking about earlier in terms of Cambridge's strengths. So, so they are seeing good things coming through, and I'm seeing some really impressive female entrepreneurs. For, for sure, there's two uh, there's two female founders that I know of in London, and they're both, I think, probably the smartest people I've ever met. Uh, one is uh, Maria at uh, at Lifebit, and then the other one is, is Noor at GTN. Both like healthcare life science companies. They do things, and you go in and you ask them what they're doing, and it's just like I have no idea. But you seem incredibly smart. And I think the more kind of entrepreneurs that we get like that, uh, the more female entrepreneurs that they get that, and they're going to, I think they're going to be very successful and, and raise a lot of money, that will feed back into the ecosystem. I mean, do you think there's anything that that we can do, you know, investors, uh, venture capitalists, even even like the AWS startup BD team can do to to help female-led companies um, whilst they're still facing this this kind of higher barrier to entry? Well, I think that's that's exactly what Angel Academy is trying to do, and I yeah. think they're they're succeeding. I mean, the group's been in existence for about six years now, and uh, through building up a, a, an angel syndicate of largely females, it's predominantly female, not exclusively female. That group of female investors will, over time, change things because they will lead and help mentor and yeah. coach these on these young uh, entrepreneurs. So that's probably that's probably the main thing. I mean, some venture capitalists like Local Globe, for example, they yeah. they are trying very hard to uh, to you know to bring in women into their own group to help back young entrepreneurs, yeah. young female entrepreneurs. Oh, for sure. Moving aside from that topic, so I'm a founder. Uh, I want to raise some angel money. I've listened to this podcast. I think Simon sounds like a very smart guy. I want to raise money from Simon. I don't necessarily have a network. How do I like? How do I approach an angel? How do I approach you as a maybe a cold introduction? Well, cold introductions generally don't work because we we all get so many of them. Yeah. So you've got to create a position where you can make some sort of or have some sort of warm introduction. Okay. So if that entrepreneur has got to find a connection with me, yep. and that's either through somebody else that we both know, or there's got to be a connection through some mutual piece of technology sure. that we know something about. There's got to, there's got to be something that's linked with, you know, it could be linked with SwiftKey or VocalIQ or what happened in those situations, or it could be linked with one of the entrepreneurs, or it could be linked with one of the investors. There's got to be, there's got to be some sort of link. Okay. So you, so if I'm an if I'm an entrepreneur and I and I, I'm literally I'm brand new to the to an ecosystem, the best thing for me to do is to go and just start creating a network of people that, you know, even if you're hey come and talk to Richard at AWS, this is what I'm building. This is why it's super interesting. This is why I think Simon would be the right person to talk to. But of course, that's really what incubators and accelerators are yeah. all about. Because you 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 try to get as an entrepreneur, you want to try and get on a good platform who can help you reach people like me. Yeah, uh, you know that's what Entrepreneur First do. Yes, Entrepreneur First, uh, TechStars, SeedCamp, um, Cylon as well. Cool. And then I think we're we're going to wrap up since I just have a couple of questions to ask because of your particular experience. So you, you know, we spoke before the podcast, you tried to spend one day in Cambridge, one day in London. Um, what do you notice the difference between the two ecosystems? Yeah, so Cambridge, as you mentioned earlier, is very much about technology, software, hardware, you know, a lot of printing, obviously ARM was there. So a lot of tech, but also very strong in life sciences, become even stronger in life sciences with the move of AstraZeneca from Cheshire to Cambridge recently, in the last few years. The Cambridge economy really is 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 actually should be a model for the rest of the UK because it's actually all about growth sectors really essentially backing the digital yeah. economy. And that's really, for me, I see that as the future of, of the UK. I'm not saying that every city in the UK can be like Cambridge. That's yeah. unrealistic. 
but many of the things that are being done well in Cambridge can be emulated in other cities uh, and should be if we're going to grow the economy. And Cambridge's economy has been growing at 7% per annum for the last yep. few years. That's as fast as China, uh, which we haven't even mentioned in this conversation, another, another, another big topic. But that's really what uh, I think is interesting in Cambridge, and that's what defines it. London is a big financial centre, and London tends to be very good at financial services, obviously. Yep. That's not Cambridge's strong point. Um, even though there's plenty of academic, good academic uh, research going on in financial services in Cambridge, but the commercialization of that tends to happen in London. Okay, cool. Very interesting. And you're involved as, a, as an individual angel, but you're also involved with some angel groups. You mentioned earlier, I think Cambridge Angels. If I'm an entrepreneur, what is the difference between pitching to like a, an, an individual angel versus pitching to an angel group? What things should I know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So in Cambridge, there are two main groups, Cambridge Angels, Cambridge Capital Group. They are the, the two known angel groups. There are, of course, angel groups, lots of angel groups in London. Yep. There are lots of angel groups throughout the UK. They broadly operate in the same way. I, they have a group of investors. Some are much more active than others. In Cambridge Angels, we have two, two types of pitch. We have what we call our informal pitches, where companies that we don't know well at all, but we think might be interesting, can come along and meet a group of angels. They can pitch to us. Uh, without any slides at all, they can just tell us their story, and uh, that gives them an opportunity to make a pitch, get some feedback from us. If we think we can help them in some way, then we'll do so, we'll follow up, or if we think we're the wrong group and somebody else is the right group, we might say, well, go to Angel Academy, or go to a venture capitalist, or go to whoever you know we think is would be appropriate if we don't think we're appropriate. And then we also have what we call more formal dinner pitches. So once an angel like me has decided that this is a company I want to back, then I might take them to, I would take them to a dinner and say to all the rest of Cambridge Angels, here is a company I'm going to back. This is why I want to back it. This is why I like them and so on. They're going to be raising so much money. Who's going to, who's going to join in and, yeah. and fund the company? So that, that's, so that's broadly how it works. Okay. Very cool. Is there a different type of company that, that should go for angel groups versus individual angels? Or is it, hey, if you're going to receive angel investment, you should try and get as many angels and angel groups as you, as you can at that very early stage? Well, I, I think you've got to be really clear about what type of angels you want. Yeah. You know, generally, the bigger, the bigger the number, the more, the more like herding cats it is. And you don't want to be spending your whole time managing angels, because otherwise you won't be running the business. There's the so-called term smart money. You really do want angels who can add some value in some way. Now, you're not necessarily always, as an entrepreneur, you're not necessarily always in the position to be able to define that. Some, sometimes you might take, uh, you might need to take money to get the company going. Sometimes from, you're just going to take the cash. You've got to take the cash. But broadly, it's better to have, say, one syndicate backing you, where there's one member of that syndicate who's in charge of the other members, if you like, in terms of corralling them and operating yeah. as one group. Because uh, otherwise you're in for a big logistical exercise as, as an entrepreneur, and that's yeah. not very effective. And you have a, a very ugly cap table when it comes time to raise some institutional finance. Yeah, and that and that's certainly something that can put VCs off. Yeah. Um, you know, if they see fifty names on the list, you know, it's 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 it can be a turnoff for them. Yeah, and for for those founders who are looking to raise money from angel groups, the UK Business Angel Association has uh, a list of angel groups. You just go on their website, and you can and you can see the angel groups there. And then just a, a couple more questions I have for you. So I'm 
founder, I've I've got my idea. You're interested in investment. I want to put in um, whatever your typical check size is. How do you think about valuation? How do you discuss valuation with founders? How should founders be thinking about uh, the valuation of their company? Yeah. So this is a perennial great question. I mean, if you, you know, if you're looking at quoted companies, then there are established parameters. Right? You should yeah. usually have profits. So there's a multiple of profits. Um, you might even have a dividend. For goodness' yeah. sake, you, know, you might even be able to uh, calculate your dividend yield. Um, but of course, at the early stage you don't have any revenue, let alone any profits. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to use all sorts of different methods for valuing companies. I Broadly, there's, you know, interesting, when I when I started investing in 2009, you could buy companies for, you know, less than a million pounds total valuation, and they had revenue. These days, you probably can't invest in a company that less than three to five million pounds, and they almost certainly won't have any revenue. So you've got to judge the management team. Yep, you've got to judge uh, whether there is, you know. But back to what I said earlier, you've got to make an, an estimate of whether you think the team is good, whether there's some differentiated, differentiated tech, whether there's some strong IP, uh, and whether there's a big market there. Yep. Uh, and you've got to make a judgment as to whether that uh, team can execute on the plan that they've presented to investors. Yeah, and then when you're talking to them, but hey, I want to invest. Are, is it you as an angel or an angel group who is setting the valuation? Is it a negotiation with the entrepreneur? How do you find that particular process? Yeah, I mean, I think the the entrepreneur has to have an idea of yeah. what they think the valuation should be, and then be prepared. A realistic to hang idea. Yeah, yeah. They won't necessarily always have a, a realistic idea, but but generally, if they're on a an accelerator program, yeah. then the accelerator will help them. Certain accelerators have a very clear idea of what the starting valuation should be, and then there's a negotiation around that. Yeah. Okay. So, and it obviously depends how much money you're raising, of course. Of course, and I think I think um, so. I went through TechStars in 2014, and the one thing that we were, were were told was like, "This is capitalism. Your valuation will be what the market can bear." Um, and I think if you go out as an entrepreneur with an unrealistic valuation, you'll very quickly find that the market's not interested. Um, and you can you can either you know try and flog a dead horse and try and raise money at that valuation, or you can kind of reset your your expectations, be more realistic, and see and see where the market settles. I mean, sometimes we uh, entrepreneurs have used ingot actually as a okay. as cool. a means of valuing their IP because that's an additional data point okay. for the valuation. So. And if you can say your IP is worth two million pounds and you're arguing for a four million pound valuation, it's not a bad data point. Yeah, um, it doesn't 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 mean that the the IP on its own sets the valuation, but it but it is it is helpful. It can yeah. be really helpful. Yeah, very cool. So Bessemer Ventures has this uh, very famous anti-portfolio of companies that they met and decided not to invest in, uh, but then went on to incredible success. Do you have a similar thing? Is there a company that you met that you're like, nope, at the time, and then they've just gone on to, to rearing success? Yes, the, the old uh, FOMO, fear yeah. of missing out. <laughs> there are always companies that you miss, just as there are many companies that you invest in that go bust. For uh, sure. You know, so, so you mentioned I had you know, six, I think it's now seven exits, actually. Uh, it is seven exits. But I've had plenty of companies that have gone bust as well or disappeared in, in some way or another. They've been folded because the business model wasn't going to work. Uh, fortunately, most of them elegantly. But um, I would say probably the the sector that I've missed out on most is probably fintech. So despite it being my background, yeah. I haven't really invested in many things in fintech. I have invested in Funderbeam, for example, which is a sort of second secondary and, and primary global matching platform for private companies. Really interesting company. But I haven't done things like uh, Revolut and Monzo. Yeah. And that, that's partly because... 
there hasn't really been the opportunity. They've really been more venture capital backed because yeah. they require huge amounts of money. Sure. So they're really well beyond the reach of most angels. You yeah. know, even, even with angels with quite large check sizes. Yeah, so. no, for sure. Final question, and I'm going to ask all the angels that I do these podcasts is, I'm an, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a founder, I'm raising my first round of money. What is going to make me or my company stand out when I'm pitching to angels or angel groups? What is that, you know, beyond the the things that we spoke, beyond just having a great team and great tech, what is it that, that I can say or that I can do that is going to make me stand out in your mind as an angel who might get 10 or 15 or 20 introductions a week to, to potential investments? Well, it's you, I mean, it's you as an individual, as the entrepreneur. Don't pretend to be some somebody you're not. You know, I like to invest in genuine people, and you can tell that very quickly. Yeah. So be yourself. Okay, be yourself. Simon Thorpe, thank you very, very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts.